0: Chapter 7 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazachi. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cecily Hamilton, Chapter 7. The end of civilization came to Theodore Savage and his fellows as it had come to uncounted thousands. There had been a still warm day with a haze on it. He judged it early autumn or perhaps late summer.
1: For the rest,
0: like any other day in the camp routine, of watchfulness, of scanning the sky in the distance, of the passing of vagabond starvation, of an evil smell drifting with the lazy air from the dead who lay unburied where they fell. Before nightfall the haze was lifted by a cold little wind from the east, and soon after darkness a moon at the full cast white, merciless light and black shadow. Theodore was asleep when the alarm was given, by a shout at the door of his hut. One of ten or a dozen, aroused like himself, he grabbed at his rifle as he stumbled to his feet, believing in the first hurried moment of waking that he was called to drive back yet another night onslaught of the starving enemy without. He ran out of the hut into a strong pallid glare that wavered. A stretch of gorse and bramble patch two hundred yards away was alight, burning lividly, and further off the same bluish flame was running like a wave across a field. Enemy aeroplanes were dropping their fire bombs here and there, flash on flash, of pale, inextinguishable flame. It was scarcely five minutes from the time he had been roused before the camp and its garrison had ceased to exist as a community and theodore savage and his living comrades were vagabonds on the face of the earth the gorse and bramble patch lay to the eastward and the wind was blowing from the east the flames rushed triumphantly at the black clump of fir trees great torches that lit up the neighborhood the guiding hand in the terror overhead had a mark laid ready for his aim the camp with its camouflaged huts and sheds seen plainly as in broadest daylight his next bomb burst in the middle of the camp blowing half a score of soldiers into bloody fragments and firing the nearest wooden building while it burned the terror overhead struck again and again then stopped to its helpless quarry and turned a machine gun on men in trenches and men running hither and thither in search of a darkness that might cover them That, for Theodore Savage, was the ending of civilization. With the crash of the first explosion, he cowered instinctively and pressed himself against the wall of the nearest shed. The flames rushing upward showed him others cowering like himself, all striving to obliterate themselves, to shrink, to deny their humanity. Even in his extremity of bodily fear, he was conscious of merciless humiliation. The machine gun crackled at scurrying little creatures that once were men and that now were but impotent flesh at the mercy of mechanical perfection. Mechanical perfection, the work of men's hands, soared over its creators, spat down at their helplessness and defaced them. They cringed in corners till it found them out and ran from it screaming without power to strike back at the invisible beast that pursued them. Without power even to surrender and yield to its mercy, they could only hate impotently and run. As they ran, they broke instinctively, avoiding each other, since a group made a mark for a gunner. Theodore, when he dared cower no longer, rushed with a dozen through the gate of the camp, but once outside it, they scattered right and left, and there was no one near him when his flight ended with a stumble. He stayed where he had fallen, a good mile from the camp in the blessed shadow of a hedgerow. He crept close to it and lay in the blackness of the shadow, breathing great sobs and trembling, crouching in dank grass and peering through the leafage at the distant furnace he had fled from. The crackling of machine guns had ceased, but here and there for miles around were stretches of flame running rapidly before a dry wind. Half a mile away, an orchard was blazing with hayricks, and he drew a long sigh of relief when another flame leaped up further off. That was miles away, that last one. They were going, thank God, they were going. He waited to make sure half an hour or more, then stumbled back in search of his companions, through fields on to the road that led past what once had been the camp. On his way, he met others dark figures creeping back like himself, by degrees a score or so gathered in the roadway, and stood in little groups, some muttering, some silent, as they watched the flames burn themselves out. There were bodies lying in the road, and beside it, men shot from above as they ran, and the living turned them over to look at their distorted faces. No one was in authority. Their commanding officer had been killed outright by the bursting of the first bomb, One of the subalterns lay huddled in the roadway, just breathing. So much they knew. In the beginning, there was relief that they had come through alive, but with the passing of the first instinct of relief came understanding of the meaning of being alive. The breath in their bodies, the knowledge that they still walked the earth, and for the rest, vagrancy and beast right, the right of the strongest to live. They took counsel together as the night crept over them, and, because there was nothing else to do, planned to search the charred ruin as the fire died out in the hope of salvage from the camp. They counted such few odd possessions as remained to them, cartridge belts, rifles thrown away in flight and then picked up in the road, the contents of their pockets no more. In the end, for the most part, they slept, the dead sleep of exhaustion till morning, to wake with cold rain on their faces. The rain, for all its wretchedness to men without shelter, was so far their friend that it beat down the flames on the smoldering timbers which were all that remained of their fortress and rock of defense. They burrowed feverishly among the black wreckage of their store sheds, blistering and burning their fingers by too eager handling of logs that still flickered, unearthing now and then some scrap of charred meat but for the most part, nothing lumps of molten metal that had once been the tins containing food. In their pressing anxiety to avert the peril of hunger, they were heedless of a peril yet greater. Their search had attracted the attention of others. Scarecrow vagrants, the rabble of the roads, who saw them from a distance and came hurrying in the hope of treasure trove. The first single spies retreated at the order of superior and disciplined numbers, but with time, their own numbers were swollen by those who halted at the rumor of food, and there hovered round the searchers a shifting, snarling, envious crowd that grew gradually nearer till faced with the threat of pointed rifles. Even that only stayed it for a little and spurred on by hunger, imagining riches where none existed, it rushed suddenly forward in a mob that might not be held those who had rifles fired at it and men in the foremost ranks went down unheeded in the rush of their fellows those who might have hesitated were thrust forward by the frantic need behind and the torrent of misery broke against the little group of soldiers in a tumult of grappling and screeching women like men asserted their beast right to food when sticks and knives failed them asserted it with claws and teeth unhuman creatures With eyes distended and wide, yelling mouths went down with their fingers at each other's throats, their nails in each other's flesh. Theodore clubbed a length of burnt wood and struck out, saw a man drop with a broken bloody face and a woman back from him shrieking, then was gripped from behind with an arm round his neck and went down. The famished creatures fought above his body and beat out his senses with their feet. When life came back to him the sun was very low in the west in his head little hammers beat intolerably and all his strained body ached with bruises as he raised himself slowly and groaning and leaned on an arm to look around he lay much where he had fallen but the soldiers the crowd of human beasts had vanished the bare stretch of camp still smoking in places was silent and almost deserted Two or three bending and intent figures were hovering round the charred masses of wreckage, moving slowly, stopping often, peering as they walked and thrusting their hands into the ashes in the hope of some fragment that those who searched before them had missed. A woman lay face downwards with her dead arm flung across his feet. Further off were other bodies, which the searchers passed without notice. Three or four were in uniform, the bodies of men who had once been his comrades, others, for the benefit of the living, had been stripped or half-stripped of their clothing. He lifted himself painfully and crawled on hands and knees with many groans and halts to the stream that had formed one border of the camp, where he drank, bathed his head, and washed the dried blood from his scratches. With a measure of physical relief, the blessing of cool water to a burning head and throat, came a clearer understanding, and with clearer understanding, fear. He knew himself alone in chaos. As soon as he might, he limped back to the smoldering wood heaps and accosted a woman who was grubbing in a mess of black refuse. Did she know what had become of the soldiers? Which way had they gone when they left? The woman eyed him sullenly, mistrustful and resenting his neighborhood, knew nothing, had not seen any soldiers, and turned again to grub in her refuse a skeleton of a man was no wiser had only just turned off the road to search did not know what had happened except that there must have been a fight but it was all over when he came up he also had seen no soldiers only the dead ones over there theodore saw in their eyes that they feared him were dreading lest he should compete with them for their possible treasure of refuse For the time being a sickly faintness deprived him of all wish for food. He left the sullen creatures to their clawing and grubbing, went back to the water, drank and soused once more, then crept farther off in search of a softer ground to lie on. After a few score yards of painful dragging and halting, he stretched himself exhausted on a strip of dank grass at the roadside and dozed where he fell until morning. With sunrise and awakening came the pangs of sharp hunger, and he dragged himself limping through mile after mile in search of the wherewithal to stay them. He was giddy with weakness and near to falling when he found his first meal in a stretch of newly burned field, the body of a rabbit that the fire had blackened as it passed. He fell upon it, hacked it with his clasp knife, and ate half of it savagely, looking over his shoulder to see that no one watched him the other half he thrust into his pocket to serve him for another meal he had learned already to live furtively and hide what he possessed from the neighbors who were also his enemies next day he fished furtively with a hook improvised out of twisted wire and worm bait dug up by his clasp knife lurking in bushes on the river bank, lest others passing by should note him and take toll by force of his catch he lived thenceforth as men have always lived when terror drives them this way and that and the earth untended has ceased to yield her bounties warring with his fellows and striving to outwit them for the remnant of bounty that was left he hunted and scraped for his food like a homeless dog when found he carried it apart in stealth and bolted it secretly after the fashion of a dog with his offal in time all his mental values changed and were distorted He saw enemies in all men, existed only to exist, that he might fill his stomach, and death affected him only when he feared it for himself. He had grown to be self-centered, confined to his body and its daily wants, and that side of his nature, which concerned itself with the future and the needs of others, was atrophied. He had lost the power of interest in all that was not personal, material, and immediate, and as the uncounted days dragged out into weeks, even the thought of Phyllida, once an ever-present agony, ceased to enter much into his daily struggle to survive. He starved and was afraid. That was all. His life was summed up in two words, starvation and fear. At night, as a rule, he sheltered in a house or deserted farm building that stood free for anyone to enter, sometimes alone, but as often as not, in company. Starved rabble, as long as it hunted for food, avoided its rivals in the chase, but when night perforce brought cessation of the hunt, the herding instinct reasserted itself and lasted through the hours of darkness. As autumn sharpened, guarded fires were lit in cellars where they could not be seen from above, and fed with broken furniture, with fragments of doors and palings, and one by one, human beasts would slink in and huddle down to the warmth some uncertainly seeking a new and untried refuge, and others returning to their shelter of the night before. The little gangs who shared fire and roof for the space of a night never ate in each other's company. Food was invariably devoured apart, and those who had possessed themselves of more than an immediate supply would hide and even bury it in a secret place before they came in contact with their fellows. Hence, no gang, no little herd, was permanent or contained within itself the beginnings of a social system. Its members had shared nothing but the hours of a night and performed no common social duties. A face became familiar because seen for a night or two in the glow of a common fire, when it vanished, none knew and none troubled to ask whether a man had died between sunrise and sunset or whether he had drifted further off in his daily search for the means to keep life in his body. When a man died in the night with others round him, the manner of his ending was known. Otherwise, he passed out of life without notice from those who yet crawled on the earth. With morning, the herd of starvelings that had sheltered together broke up and foraged, each man for himself and his own cravings. Rooted in fields and trampled gardens, crouched on river banks, fishing, laid traps for vermin, ransacked shops and houses where scores had preceded them and some it was muttered as time went on and need grew yet starker fed horribly and therefore plentifully there were nights many nights when a herd broke in panic from its shelter and scattered to the winds of heaven at an alarm of the terror overhead and always as starvation pressed it dwindled by death and the tendency to dissolve into single nomads who such as survived Regrouped themselves elsewhere to scatter and regroup again. With repeated wandering, now this way, now that, as hope and hunger prompted, went all sense of direction and environment. The nomads, hunting always, drifted into broken streets or dead villages and threw them to the waste of open country, not knowing where they were, in the end not caring, and turned back by a river or the sea the sight or suspicion of food and plunder would always draw vagrancy together in crowds district after district untouched by an enemy had been swept out of civilized existence by the hordes which fell on the remnants of prosperity and tore them which ransacked shops and dwellings slaughtered sheep horses cattle and devoured them and often enough in a fury of destruction and vehement envy set light to houses and barns, lest others might fare better than themselves. But when flocks, herds, and storehouses had vanished, when agriculture, like the industry of cities, had ceased to exist, and nothing remained to devour and plunder, the motive for common action passed. With equality of wretchedness, union was impossible, and every man's hand against his neighbor. If groups formed here and there of the stronger and more brutal, who joined forces for common action, they held together only for as long as their neighbors had possessions that could be wrested from them, stores of food or desirable women. Once the neighbors were stripped of their all and there was nothing more to prey on, the group fell apart or its members turned on each other. In the life predatory, man had ceased to be creative in a world where no one could count on a morrow. Construction and forethought had no meaning. End of chapter 7 recording by Jennifer Mazachi